0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Democracy in Color's first post election episode, post midterms. And we wanted to get this one into your hands as soon as possible. And we're doing this because really there's no way to properly understand what happened yesterday, the good and the bad, and what's going to follow without looking at the role of people of color, women of color, grassroots organizing and what pundits call the blue wave, which here at Democracy in Color we know is actually a brown wave, and we're gonna get into it today. Joining me today are two of the most excellent national and statewide political minds shaping the progressive agenda. First, I'll chat with Tim Molina, our political insider and political director of the Courage Campaign. It's a voice that you should, by now, know after a whole season of Democracy in Color podcasts. How you doing, Tim?
1: I'm great. Doing great. Thanks, Amy.
0: You sound so tired.
1: You sound great. You can tell, huh? (laughs) Yeah, it's like we've been working uh, on an election for two years or (laughs) 22 months or whatever it's been. Oh, well,
0: listen, Tim, um, I want to hear what's, what's your analysis of what happened in California. I also want to bring in Steve Phillips, who is my partner in the work at Democracy in Color, the founder and author of the New York Times bestseller, Brown is the New White, how the demographic revolution has created a new American majority. Uh, Steve, thanks so much for joining us. Good to be here. Tim, I wanted to bring you in from the California perspective you know, I was surprised. Everyone calls California the you know it's the center of the resistance and the big blue state. And what did we see happen at the midterms?
1: Uh, we saw Harley Ruda beat Dana Rohrabacher. Dana Rohrabacher was like people called him uh, Putin's number one uh, you know U.S. puppet, and and that was a that was a really big win for a lot of people, and it brought a lot of hope for folks. And the other huge thing we saw was that this couldn't have been done without the wave of younger voters. Of younger voters of color, I got to tell you, for us Californians and the grassroots in the, in the front lines here, we were using Steve's uh, Brown is the New White as a playbook. We were definitely trying to empower these folks that want to see, you know, their values being represented in D.C. and see this country go into a more inclusive and welcoming direction. So th- those races were really, really uplifting for us. Still, some that w- you know wish we had on the other way. We the wave wasn't as big as we'd like it to be. We had six to seven really close congressional races, and we've only won three at this point. So a lot more work to be done, but there's still plenty to celebrate in California last night.
0: Are the Democrats going to do anything differently, you think, Steve, coming out of the midterms?
2: I saw a tweet this morning. Someone says, uh, last night taught us one thing clearly. The right is unified in the embrace of racism, while the left is not unified in their opposition to racism. And so this is really the essence of what's happening here, is that how do you confront these types of issues? And do you ignore them? Do you try to change the subject? Do you try to you know, put your head in the sand, which is the traditional democratic playbook?
0: Were you surprised? You were one of the few people, Steve, that had mentioned over the course of the last couple of months that the Senate was in place. And so when you were watching the returns come in, um, in the election last night, did that sort of the results bear out that was it in play what did you see
2: traditionally historically and even in the in the the just basic uh, logical human behavior um, the in power party has a drop-off, because their supporters and their people feel like, oh, okay, we've got it. We've got our person in there. Things are pretty good. We're not upset. We have other things to do with our lives and really be very aggressive in terms of trying to mobilize and get our people out. But the sense of being aggrieved and threatened and needing to go into action was so stoked by this president that, and it resonated so deeply with people, um, that there was extraordinary turnout on the republican side to basically defend this way of life and this conception of the country and so that's what sunk a lot of the candidates that were in a more tenuous position right in Indiana and Missouri and uh, North Dakota so had those been held and had there been the you know proper investment in uh, in voters of color in places like Tennessee, what's-his-face in Tennessee, uh, Bredesen was out saying he'd have voted for Kavanaugh, right? I mean, How is that going to inspire your base and turn people out that you need oh. to actually support? Oh,
0: this is reminding <laughs> me, Kirsten Sinema, uh, who's running a very competitive race, said uh, 24 hours before the polls opened that she supported Trump sending troops to, to the, the border. To the border, right. I tweet at people. They don't respond, but I still do it. I said, which people do you think actually would elect you in the state of Arizona and which women, you know, and um, I didn't get a response from that. But I guess I guess the election results were her response. I mean, and and Tim, you're seeing this. You kind of saw that same thing, too, where the Democratic Party congressional candidates in the central and southern California weren't the most, you know, some were not, you know, flying the progressive flag there.
1: No. The mostly white, uh, older Republican base—it feels like this—they're losing control of this state in a lot of ways. Are revolting in their own way, and they're definitely turning out. And if our—if who's trying to combat that, or the, the the candidates that are running to unseat some of these representatives are—are are not offering much different. <laughs> like if they're coming in and saying, "Oh, we're going to work with both. Of, we're going to," you know, starting from a more centrist place. Um, the people on the left who are uh, scared, who are upset or pissed about what's, what's happened with Kavanaugh or what the president is saying, like, I'm sorry, you're not picking up that many votes. So it's a combination of like how we, you know, how we as, as in the left are are, are giving resources or where we're investing resources. And the folks on the ground in Central Valley, you know, we're telling us like, look, this is the first time that anyone's even considered helping us out or coming here and, and helping us register more people to vote or turn out more uh you know turn out more latino voters and etc and it was um it was interesting uh yeah and the same way in in some of these orange county races as well so
0: that boggles my mind i want to ask you about mississippi steve because you were the one who said hey mississippi is going to be a sleeper and sure enough uh congressman espy is is in the runoff uh that that was a big surprise for a lot of people
2: mississippi's One of, if not the blackest state in the country in terms of its percentage um, of the state population. And so there was, and it's a small state and a small enough state that you can actually organize and mobilize your supporters. So what we did in terms of the Power Pack Plus team with uh, Marvin Randolph and Andy Andy Wong putting that operation together was worked with the in-state voter mobilization effort to really do a significant under-the-radar voter mobilization effort uh, on behalf of ESPY. You know, called a couple hundred thousand voters, identified uh, uh, 100,000 supporters, knocked on doors, sent mail, to really try to make that effort move forward. So ESPY did, you know, quite well, um, better than he had been doing in the polls. Uh, 41% looks like he's going to get basically tied with Cindy Hyde-Smith it comes back to this other issue is that that's a very high turnout on the republican side and a higher than anticipated turnout so had there not been the everybody you know circling the wagons around the you know defender of white supremacy in the white house S.P. actually probably could have won that last night um, in terms of getting 50% in the special but you know it's then go to a runoff and so, again, we'll see what the dynamics are because, you know, again, they have everything they would have wanted on the, on the right and the conservatives. So there's a scenario which gets back to the Democratic Party. Are we going to invest massive resources in this Mississippi race? And massive, Mississippi is small, um, but certainly, it's, you know, many millions. But to get every black voter there to vote absentee ahead of the, what is it, November 27th, runoff, something like that? That's so a that's resource up and a, soon. Yeah, yeah prioritization yeah. issue.
0: We could see an in, in Alabama-style win, couldn't we? And if there was the right investment there in the next few weeks,
2: absolutely. I mean, the numbers are there, and again, this gets to a question of prioritization, and this is where the strategic dilemma is going to be. Right? Is that clearly, you know, Trumps has made clear his strategy of, you know, to hell with anybody in the middle. He's going to go as far to the right and to the racist right as he can and rile people up. Um, without any regard for, oh, you're going to lose people or turn people off, where on the Democrat side, it's like, well, we can't be too strong to so turn people off. And so it's really, you know, maddening. But again, Mississippi is a small enough state with a large enough black population that if the Democratic Party and the Senate side of the investors were committed to move multiple millions of dollars immediately, that is a seat that we could actually win um, in this runoff.
0: Other things that were on the ballot was in Florida Amendment 4, which restored voting rights to people with felony uh, records. Now that's a game changer in Florida. Any others that you were looking at, both at Steve and Tim, that passed yesterday that really are indications that we have sort of a people's agenda that's moving forward?
2: That Florida Amendment 4 is going to restore voting rights for 1.4 million people. And so what that means heading into 2020, is going to be extraordinarily significant in terms of winning the uh, Florida and then winning uh, back the White House. So that is you know, very important to keep in mind. But completely under the radar uh, is last night, three African-Americans were elected lieutenant governors. And so now the lieutenant governors in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Illinois are all african American. And this is on top of Justin Fairfax winning uh, in Virginia last year, and who's now the chair of the National Lieutenant Governors Association. So that is not inconsequential and it's not to be underappreciated in terms of of the leadership pipeline, the new leadership of the party that's coming forward. It's also something we should be celebrating.
0: Yeah, yeah. You're listening to Democracy in Color. We'll be back. Hi, i'm amy allison host of the podcast democracy in color the voice of the new american majority join our conversations with today's best and brightest political leaders strategists and thinkers our mission to take our country back with the power of progressives of every race and we invite you to join us to learn more visit democracyandcolor.com or follow us on twitter at democracy color We're back. Welcome to Democracy in Color. Tim, what are your bright spots?
1: As particularly other voting rights measures, we saw Nevada pass a measure for automatic voter registration that was passed. We saw Michigan passing a package of voting, um, voting reforms, which include automatic voter registration, same-day voter registration, et cetera. We're seeing that working really well out here in California. Just in Orange County, we had a, a line that was like three hours long in Santa Ana, because it was the main office, main register office in Orange County where people could do same-day registration and cast a provisional ballot. So it works. Um, and people seeing more and more people voting, uh, they want to get in on it. We even talked to some young voters that said, well, hell, if all my friends are voting, what am I doing? Uh, it gets them it gets them out there. So we saw that in effect last night. And so that was exciting to see. We also redistricting. This is kind of a, sometimes it can be a wonky issue, but it's huge. We saw several states pass state measures that... Uh, Made it so um, redistricting would be done by independent slash nonpartisan commissions. That's already being done in some states, including California, and that's huge, huge in a lot of ways. So that was really exciting to see in Michigan, Colorado, and some other states. Again, the increase in younger, uh, younger voters at the polls. Uh, we saw Latinos uh, over close to 1.5 million uh, increase in, in voter turnout in this election. So those, yeah, those are some of the that's ones that's pretty incredible. Last night.
0: Can we just stop? Can any anyone says sleeping giant? I swear to God, I'm I'm just going to carry tape and just say, <laughs> stop, stop, uh, because um, you've written about this, giant. Steve, and you're you're, bring, you're bringing you're this up. This is like, Latinos are the force. Where did we see the turnout, and what do we think that means for you know going kind of going forward? Is it? But it has to be like Texas, right? Did you see high turnout in Texas? And oh yeah, oh, absolutely. People,
2: I mean that's that's another you know overall huge bright spot. Right. So we've gone from losing statewide in Texas by about 800,000 votes in uh, 2014 to 600,000 in 2016. Beto came within 200,000 votes statewide yesterday in Texas. So that is becoming more and more within reach and the extraordinary uh, energy and level of organizing around that campaign Um, across the racial spectrum has created an infrastructure of activists and organizers and volunteers that we can continue to build on and then underneath that because of the great organizing work particularly among uh, voters of color and particularly among Latinos by groups like Texas Organizing Project we won uh, congressional district pickups in Houston District 7 in Dallas uh, District 32 Colin Allred African-American Flipped that seat against Pete Sessions, who had run a majority person of color district in 2016 and was unopposed. There was nobody on the ballot against him. Wow. This time we run an aspiring candidate of color. We organized to get out people to vote and we've defeated him. And the Texas 23, Gina Ortiz uh, Jones, in uh, San Antonio area. A, is a razor edge, just like within a few hundred votes, as voters as votes continue to come in, and that's organizing and mobilizing Latino voters. I want to say one other thing too, in terms of like the takeaways. I think I just want to make sure we don't um, uh, overlook or underappreciate the headline here. Is that after three years of unrelenting and increasingly dangerous and increasingly powerful. Uh, destruction of democratic norms, uh, contempt for uh, all non wealthy straight white men. Finally, the country and the democracy in the world are going to have some accountability for this man. He had no accountability. This his run up to the nomination, and then his, you know, basically stealing the electoral college, and then it, since he's been governing. And now there's going to be a Democratic Congress. And this is the first time in these three years. So the significance of this really to the health and the future of our democracy and our country and ultimately the world is not to be underestimated. And so while we had some specific disappointments, the historic and uh, imperative significance of being able to take back the house, which was not an easy lift i mean it's it's through work like you right. know like the courage campaign and other groups like that, we won many of these seats by just a few thousand votes, and that's just knocking and calling and texting that's people right. and, and what resulted in those wins
0: When is it going to be done? <laughs> that's really my question
2: well, this is the work you know i mean it's i was I'm joking with friends about uh uh I, keep, I not infrequently wind up thinking you know that uh, Harriet Tubman doesn't feel our pain right and that in mm-hmm. terms of those of us who are social and racial justice advocates, so freedom is a constant struggle, and it is the work of the next two and three years. And so this fight is going to play itself out around what is the strategy for winning in 2020. Um, the irony of what they're saying is it's not just a geographic issue, it's a demographic issue. Because we mm-hmm. do need to, frankly, lose by less in these different rural areas. But that's not about trying to water down your politics and some you know, half-hearted attempt to appeal uh, to the people who are supporting Trump. It's about finding the progressives um, and the people of color in those areas and getting them to vote. So this is just going to play itself out. This is going to be the, the uh, intertwined with the 2020 presidential race and strategy. So we have to be fighting that fight now laying the groundwork for who prevails and whoever prevails run how the 2020 election will be run. And if it's done properly, we will have a new president in uh, uh, January 2021. And then working with that person to restructure all of these institutions of the party and of the progressive ecosystem. And so we need to be engaged in that struggle now. So it's all of us who are activists from Democracy and Color, from Courage Campaign, people did, you know, all the new activists, people who are you know, indivisible and DFA and groups like that, all have to be engaging with the party where the big money is around what is the strategy and insisting upon much higher levels of uh, uh, really arithmetic as well as transparency and accountability around what the the plans are going to be, so this is the fight that's incumbent upon us who want to make uh, you know the country better and see that the progressives move in a more effective direction.
0: just um I was going to come back to you and ask uh, Tim what do you believe should be done in these in let's say the first hundred days after this new crop of leaders takes office at House. Impeachment?
1: Wait, sorry. <laughs> Don't
0: sorry. No, I, I mean, it, uh, no, remember I'm... we were we were we were uh, together in a studio yes, at UC here. Berkeley. Rashida Talib, who's now the congresswoman from Michigan, Palestinian American, first Muslim in Congress. Rashida said, "That's what she wants to pursue." Yes.
1: That's where I was going with it. I was saying I, I was thinking back when you asked me that. I was thinking back to that conversation. She said, "I'm <laughs> going to DC," so we. First and foremost, impeach <laughs> uh, for every reason, and 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 I'm 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 willing to entertain that. But I also think uh, a lot of these candidates ran on health care. They ran on keeping families together, and I'm going to ho- plan. I hope I and Courage Campaign and other organizations will, will have to hold them accountable to that. See. How speaking they...
0: of, speaking of holding accountable, I wonder what the balance is going to be between pushing legislation that's going to end up on Trump's desk, kind of thing. Reversing some of the damage that's been done in the last couple of years and holding Trump accountable. I thought it was really interesting that our California Congresswoman Maxine Waters, one of the clearest, most courageous voices as a black woman kind of like uh, challenging Trump. um, He's attacked her personally. Now she's going to be the head of a committee that could very well in Congress subpoena his financial records and hold him accountable that way. I think that's a pretty awesome potential possibility there.
2: Yeah, and I get something, too. I think that, so, we have to think of this as a period in history. And we have an opportunity over the next three years, which could then last the next two or three decades. So we have this two-year run-up to the next presidential election. And there is now an extraordinarily uh, diverse and creative and progressive network of elected officials, not just in Congress, but across the country at the local level, the state level. So what I want to do with, uh, uh, you know, in terms of the work that we're doing at Democracy in Color, looking at the 2019 and 2020, is starting to lift up a agenda around moving the country towards the vision of equality and justice for all. And to advance that, Specifically, in early 2019, at the local level, the state level, looking at like people like Michael Tubbs in Stockton, and what they're doing around the universal basic income piece. Can we partner with other people to introduce similar legislation in different places to get more of a sense of movement, a movement going? Can we work with Mary Gonzalez in the Texas state legislature? Can we work with California uh, Senator Holly Mitchell? Now we have a you know a new governor in California to advance that agenda and then have that agenda inform the 2020 presidential election to have that be a referendum around this type of policy vision around what kind of country we're going to be what kind of people we are and then have the mandate to govern in a very even more bold and imaginative way come 2021 all across the country in a way that we have not been able to do and really is moving almost like a a great society or New Deal type of vision updated and made more multiracial and more ambitious, given the fact that we have more political power than we actually yeah. did in those two periods.
0: See, and the message is not to shrink from that, but to just to go big, <laughs> go big. I, you know, thinking about health care, which is a big reason a lot of voters stated for voting the way that they did yesterday. Medicare for all, Medicare expansion, uh, Congresswoman out of uh, Washington Pramila Jaropal, who was on um, on this podcast last season, she's begun a Medicare for All caucus, and they want to move that forward in every state. I think these are examples of what we could do. And I just wanted to take a moment to congratulate all the newly elected candidates. I mean, like you, Tim, I want everyone to be accountable. I, you know what I mean? I want them to fully embrace and think big. I think some of the activist um, organizer type newly elected folks are going to be the ones, even though they have less experience potentially, might lead uh, coalitions that can think boldly about what we can get done. So I wanted to also thank you, Tim, and thank you, Steve, for joining us on the podcast today. This episode of Democracy in Color was produced by Lentigua Williams & Co. Our editor is Chiquita Pascal. Our producer is Annie Nguyen with additional production support by LaVon Briggs. Special thanks to Tim Molina, political director of Courage Campaign, and Steve Phillips, founder of Democracy in Color. Please subscribe to Democracy in Color wherever you get your podcasts and rate us on iTunes. For more, visit democracyincolor.com and follow us on Facebook and get in touch on Twitter. We want you in the conversation too. This is the last episode of our third season Thanks for staying with us and telling your friends and neighbors about us. It's been our pleasure to bring you a dose of political intelligence. So until next time, thanks for joining us.